when I mention that you're woodworked, I have people ask me what that means. Do you want to just say quick? I'd be happy to. So the more common term is stealth. I have a big problem with this word. Um, oh, absolutely. Basically, nobody knows and you don't tell anybody. Yeah. And that's what woodworked is. Uh, you disappear into the woodwork. Uh, we are in the woodwork. We are forced into the woodwork. And that's how yeah. I feel about it. I've been woodworked for 28 years almost. Wow. Um, and furthermore, I was deep stealth. Um, and what stealth is, nobody knows. Deep stealth is your husband and your family don't know. Hello, you're listening to Alice and Mia, the show where we talk about cis stuff, trans stuff, women stuff, and do our very best to keep it easy on the heavy stuff. I'm Alice in Washington. And I'm Miriam Suzanne. Welcome to the conversation that centers your question and our very best attempt to come up with an answer. Or, failing that, at least a clever way of dodging your question. Find out everything about the pod and everything else we do at aliceandmia.com. You know, I was noticing when I was doing the post-production notes on episode one, as we talked about all around it, and we never explained that we're not actually in the studio together. No, we've never actually met in person. Actually, that's true, <laughs> although it seems like we have. Um, well, let's figure this out. What time is it? Oh, let's see. It's uh, 1230 here, 1230 in the afternoon. Uh-huh. Well, it's half past seven in the evening here. Yeah. And here is the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Oxfordshire right now in the merry old country of England. Um, yeah. And you are somewhere in the central U.S. Yeah, I'm in Denver, Colorado. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been living in the south of England, actually, down by Brighton. Um, I came back here about a month ago. I'd been living in France uh, with my boyfriend, who mm -hmm. may or may not still be my boyfriend. I haven't <laughs> quite decided about that. Is he listening? Uh, kind of hope not, but I guess <laughs> if he is, then I'll get the whole thing sorted. <laughs> well, I mean, he knows what he has to do. I'm not asking for much. So it's like I got two things that, you know, he needs to man up on, and he can choose to do that or not. We'll find okay. out. Okay. Well, I'd rather be in France, but um, <laughs> I sort of, I, consi I consider France home. I'm, England's nice enough, but. Is that, uh, is that where you're from? Um,. Oh, that question. <laughs> I never know how to answer that question. I've even I've, uh -huh. tried say, I've tried saying I'm European. And uh -huh. then that just makes people question <laughs> even more. You know, it's like, um, oh, one of my favorite things. I was out for friends when I was lost in Seattle. And uh, mm -hmm. we're walking down the street. It's late at night and some drunk people are coming the other way. And I'm, we're chattering away. And, and one of them does an about face. And she says, you have an accent. <laughs> And I said, so do you. <laughs> Ew. Uh, so I don't know. So you've been listening to me. Where do I sound like I'm from? That's what I want to know. Well, I'm not an accents expert, uh, so I'm not sure. I mean, I would probably just say broadly, broadly England. But um, I mean, it's just. Yeah. Isn't, uh, isn't that funny? That, that's what Americans think. They think it's English. Yeah. I mean, what do I know? <laughs> no, but here's the thing. In England, I am consistently clocked as being American. Oh, okay. Isn't that weird? Interesting. Is it because uh, you talk too loud and say obnoxious things? No, no. It's just, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and then if I query further, they say, well, it's like soft American. Soft you know, American. But I, okay. Yeah. So I think... I think I say my consonants more American and my vowels more English or something. Oh, but here, so the fu the funny thing is, if I'm in France and e English speakers meet me, you know what they say then? What's that? They say, "Oh, your English is so good." <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It is quite good. <laughs> All right. So I'm a native English speaker. I was born in the States, but I was okay. raised in I was raised mostly in France, some in England, and uh, was for three years in Norway. Oh. So the accent is a mashup, you know, and, and then after that, at age 14, um, I was sent back to live with my father in the States. So um, it's a mashup 
of believe it or not probably like uh french and norwegian vowels mm -hmm. with um having had english tutors and um basically i'm a foreigner wherever i go <laughs> in in french i clock i clock as french um usually but sure i think even there there's a slight hint of the étranger as we say anyway so where am i from i don't know I do not identify yeah. as American, but then Europe. I think there are You're a lot Europe. of. I think there's a lot of people that aren't identifying as American these days. Yeah. So where are you from? Ah, uh, well, let's see. I was born in Lesotho, uh, which most people think is pronounced Lesotho, but it's not. Uh, it's that small country completely surrounded by South Africa. That's not in America. That is not in America. Uh huh. No. So, so you're African. Well, no, my parents are American, and I grew up mostly in the states. Uh, so citizenship, I'm entirely mm -hmm. American. Mm -hmm. um, but I was in Lesotho for the first five years of my life, huh. and then living in Indiana for most of my childhood and adolescence, and then now in Denver. So, huh. done a lot of traveling in the meantime, but those are the main three places I've lived. So you were born in Africa, but you're not African, and I was born in the U.S., but I'm not American. That's right. Okay, works for me. Well, Mia, it's time for questions from listeners. Great. Um, which, since this is only the second podcast, is actually, uh, truthfully, questions from our readers. That's right. <laughs> uh, who we've gone out to and said, hey, we're starting this up, send in your questions. We got some good ones. Um, so I guess in this show, we're going to finish up talking about ourselves because that's our favorite subject. <laughs> um, but starting next week, we're going to get more topical. This is kind of the way we want the show to go. So that we're going to throw a couple themes out there. People are going to send questions in Great. kind of around those themes. And then uh, we'll script and decide what we're going to do with the show's based on that. Sounds good. And the themes we've picked for the next couple of episodes, um, the first one is, are you a boy or a girl? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a kind of deliberately loaded question, and yeah. one that I think most of us have heard at one time or another. So we're going to talk about gender identity. Yeah. The other one is uh, we're calling uh, Leap of Faith, which is about everything that's involved in coming out to yourself when you are yeah. um, struggling with your gender. Um, and eventually, um, most of us, or at least many of us, choose to transition. And that whole process of coming out to yourself and choosing that leap of faith. Yeah, I think uh, that's, a, that's a great title for it. That title is actually um, from one of our readers who sent in the questions that inspired that episode. So Amanda is going to get big props for that. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Yeah. So lastly, I just want to say if you are more comfortable writing in Spanish or French, because we I know we have a lot of readers who are not native English speakers, uh, feel free to do so. We do those languages. Si vous préférez, s'il vous plaît, écrire en français. Y también puedes escribir en español. Gracias. Yeah, I guess I'll be responding in English and I'll be counting on your translation. <laughs> uh, we can do that. I did I did spend some time in Guatemala, but uh, my Spanish is pretty rusty. Well, maybe we'll have to work on that. I'll take the French questions, you take the Spanish ones. <laughs> my French, I can ask for more cheese and that's about it. Uh, bon, alors, um, <laughs> Mia, Mia More, una demanda, por favore. Okay, what language are we in now? <laughs> that is Italian. Uh, okay. My mother spoke Italian. I decidedly <laughs> do not. I think you just did, but... <laughs> Don't send questions in Italian. What I said was, was Mia, Mia More, my love, una domanda, a question, per favore. Give me a question, please. Oh, okay. Let's see. So the first one here, uh, we don't remember who asked this, um, but how did you choose your name? Uh, and does it have any special meaning for you? Why don't you start? Oh, ah. Uh... Miriam, Miriam Suzanne. Is Suzanne your original last name? No. 
Um, so actually, my name that I had before, there was somebody else in my field who had exactly the same name and both basically wrote the book on the field. So they had... Uh, that's inconvenient. They had the entire first two pages of Google locked down. Um, and as soon as I started to become known in the field, it became very awkward. Uh-huh. Uh, we were confused regularly. We were sending people back and forth for a while. And eventually I got rejected from an arts conference because they looked at his bio and said, you don't do any art. And I said, oh, no. you, th you think I lied to you? That's your conclusion <laughs> from looking up a generic name <laughs> and finding the wrong bio? That's wild. Um, but I decided then I had to change something. So uh, given different, let's say, genital circumstances at birth, uh, my parents would have would have named me Miriam Suzanne. Um, that would have been first and middle. Huh. But I ended up, I made a long list of names and I asked my parents for family names. And that was the one I settled on. And I think I was interested in the feminization of it. Although at the time I vaguely knew that I should probably be changing my first name instead. Uh, I wasn't ready for that. Mm -hmm. So I just picked a feminine last name. Oh, so you went around with your dead name, except with, with Suzanne as your last name. That's right. Yeah. Oh. So I had a, a name between my dead name and my current name. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that was a mix of the two. Interesting. And then once I decided to transition, I just thought, okay, great. I've already got Suzanne there. I'll take Miriam, which was uh, the first name my parents would have given me. I had to first go looking and make sure that I was okay with... Uh, the nicknames, I knew that a lot of people wouldn't want to say Miriam, and I was right. Uh-huh. Everybody wants to shorten it, so I've got to shorten it for them in case they do it wrong. <laughs> right. And you said, um, I should call you Mimi. Is that right? No, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fuck off, Allie. <laughs> well, no, off limits. No, nobody can call me Mimi or Miri. Those are uh, off limits for everyone. Okay, so. we'll bear that in mind. <laughs> but Mia is fair game for everyone. That's. Uh... <laughs> I like Mia. I think the strangest thing that I did with my name is that I kept my dead name as my middle name. Yeah, do you know that kind of weirds me out every time I see it? You know, that kind of weirds me out every time I see it. I'm, I'm still not convinced it was a great idea. I thought it was clever at the time. Um. Hmm. Did you feel differently at the time you did it, or was it just as uncomfort uncomfortable then? I think it was uh, just as uncomfortable then, although, you know, I wasn't as far from it, uh, which maybe helped in that, like, I was used to it huh. uh, in a way that I'm not anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure. I really liked, you know, this would get into a lot of other things, which we don't have to dive too deep into uh, right now, but I always felt... Uh, uncertain because I didn't fit the trans narrative that I saw, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it was it was people that did very gender queering things with their transitions that really helped me mm -hmm. see that I was part of the story. I've heard that a lot from people that pe there's this this standard narrative of the early onset awareness, and yeah, the intense physical dysphoria and suicidality and all of that, which was my story. Mm -hmm. um, but it may actually not be the most common narrative. It may be that this more ambiguous situation may, may in fact be the most common. Yeah, I'm not sure. I actually, I was just looking at Marcy Bauer's website. She's one of the main trans surgeons. Right, very highly regarded. Yeah, and she was saying that uh, 80 to 90% of her clients have that story. And I'm curious uh, how much that's left over from it being a required story in the past. Yeah. And we're going to get into that when we do the leap of faith, because the problem is I think a lot of people get spit out of the queue because they think that they're not real trans. We will definitely talk about that. Well, tell me about your name. Well, um, Alison Washington is a pseudonym, so I can't talk about my name. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Alison is my real name. Um, it's actually my middle name, and it is the name I go by. Okay. Um, and strangely, people people don't seem to be inclined to shorten it, although I like Alice as well. Um, 
my legal first name is a feminization of my dead name, and I have this. Okay. I have the same problem with it. you have with. Sure. I mean, it would be the same as if you, for example, had taken and made it into. Right, which everybody thought I would do, and I was like, "That sounds terrible." I've never liked this name. Why would I keep <laughs> using it? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, it's funny because when you're first making that decision, as you say, you're not so far from it and it seems right. like a reasonable thing to do. Yes. And I think, I think I felt pressure from the cis people around me who didn't want to have to work too hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't overtly stated. Right. But I think it was sort of in the subtext and I didn't really object to my dad name. It was a perfectly good name. And by the way, actually, we never mentioned this, the reason that I was able to skirt under the gender radar and live as a girl until I was 14 is because my dead name is very rare and reads as female. Okay. So So you didn't have to make any name changes or anything in order to do that? No, no. My dead name read completely as female um, is very rare a name. Oh, that's interesting. I do have several friends who are very happy with their with their sort of gender-neutral dead names and continue to use them. Yeah, I, I know a Sam. now yeah. Not Samuel, now Samantha, but still Sam. Mm-hmm. Went by Sam on both sides, and I'm like, fuck, girl, what do you mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get... I I know that's a thing. You know, I think of Jordan Raskopoulos, who didn't change her yeah. name. It was a Jordan I was thinking of, yeah. Who I have enormous respect for, and I like Jordan as a name, but there's something about dead names that just doesn't work for me, but it works yeah. for her. Yeah, She seems very proud of it. And yeah, I mean, more and it power to her. sure does seem simpler. They're not going through any of this uh, documentation change that I had to deal with. So, yeah, she didn't have to change her name at all. Anyway, so yeah, so I, I sort of increased the feminization of my dead name and made that my first name. Allison is my middle name, and then my nice. last name will remain unspoken. Right. Um, <laughs> because I am still woodworked in my private life, and That's right. I get quite an. I get quite enough hate and people coming after me as Alice in Washington. I don't need them looking me up um, in my private life. Yeah. Now, uh, when you say woodworked, I often, when I mention that you're woodworked, uh, I have people ask me what that means. Do you want to just say quick? I'd be happy to. So the more common term is stealth. Mm -hmm. I have a big problem. I have a big problem with this word. Oh, absolutely. Um, Analogous to the problem I have with the word passing, although mm-hmm. I use passing because uh, the only alternative right now is blending, and it hasn't really taken hold. Anyway, um, passing blending is when you get read as cisgender when you're out in the world, mm-hmm. which I do, which you do, yeah. and which we're grateful for, uh, because it means that you don't become the focus of all that intense curiosity and sometimes hatred. Right. What stealth is, is taking that to the nth degree. So that um, basically nobody knows and you don't tell anybody. Yeah. And that's what woodworked is. Uh, you disappear into the woodwork. Woodwork is a term that was, uh, when I transitioned, stealth was not in use as a mm-hmm. word. Uh, the, the, what, the word that was most commonly used by us was assimilated. Oh, sure. And the reason that this didn't get differentiated is because it was assumed that you would woodwork. Right. There were a few people who were out in public, but it was very rare, and we thought they were nuts. Right. The the Kate Bornsteins of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People who sort of made a profession of being trans, mm-hmm. um, whereas for most of us, our goal was simply to disappear into the fabric of society. Right. I like the term woodwork, and I continue to use it, and I'm actually promoting it for a couple of reasons. Stealth sounds like a secret CIA spy yeah. undercover. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very um, kind of active, you know, I'm doing this thing. That's not what this is. This is... A sick- yeah, and it, it implies a dishonesty. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And none of us are in the woodwork because we want to be. Right. If society would accept us as women, or as men for trans men, without all the bloody questions and asterisk and, you know, real man versus trans man, you know, real woman versus trans woman thing, if we would be accepted for who we are with the respect that we're entitled to, none of us would do that. We would not erase our history. We We would not erase ourselves. Absolutely. We are in the woodwork. We are forced into the woodwork. Yeah. And that's how I feel about it. 
I've been woodworked for 28 years almost. Wow. Uh, and you, you only came out recently online, but only with a nom de plume. I've been out for about a year and a half mm -hmm. back in the trans community doing this. Um, for the previous 27 years, I had no contact with the community or with other trans people whatsoever. Ooh, that sounds hard. Um, and furthermore, I was deep stealth. Stealth is nobody knows. Deep stealth is your husband and your family don't know. Right. Um, and I was deep stealth. Yeah. So that's sort of the hardest of the hard. Yeah. Well, welcome to Halfway Out. It's 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 funny. It's uh, it's difficult. Uh, for example, um, here in England, um, the the um, the membrane between my private life and my public life is getting quite thin because I'm uh, meeting a lot of people at events and 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 so forth who know me as Alison Washington, right? And who also know people that are in my private life. So it's actually getting a little scary. Yeah, it seems like the it seems like the half and half would be the hardest. It really is. Um, and I, I about every six months, I decide I have to stop because it gets too frightening. Usually, when a, when the turfs come after me, right? Because you know, I, I mean, I had to talk, have a talk with my daughter about what would happen if and when a reporter shows up and starts badgering her. Sure. I mean, that's not a kind of conversation I want to have. You know, that my daughter has to worry about coming under attack. Right. But that's the way it is. Yeah. Do they have any special meaning for you? So Alice has a very special meaning for me. I, I, I have the name because my closest friend, when I went into transition, she started calling me Alice. Okay. And it's from Through the Looking Glass. Yeah. Because her t her take on transition, on gender transition, was that it was like sure. stepping through the looking glass, and so she she just started calling me Alice. Yeah, and I just loved that. And I was going to choose Alice, and then for reasons, yeah, uh, Elvis Costello uh, had the song Allison, which was like every, my absolute favorite song, made me cry. Oh yeah, and I and that was pretty much what um, what led to me taking Allison. In fact, actually, if you look in my transitional moments series the story is called uh, live name talks about how i got the name allison actually my drummer gave it to me okay <laughs> uh yeah so you yeah. have to go read that live name okay. is the story uh so yeah very very special meaning yeah. to me i guess the the meaning in mine all comes from my family and um uh it's it's clear that um so for you, it was the name. It was the name you were yeah, supposed to it have. It was the name they would have given me, and that felt uh -huh. that felt uh, easy and natural. Um, I wasn't sure about going by Miriam regularly, uh, so I wanted to make sure there was a good nickname for it. Um, but uh -huh. uh, it seems like my family has been very appreciative that I uh, sort of stuck with family names, even though I was losing my last name and changing my first name and. Uh, in all of the transition, they were happy that I was able to keep some sense of connection. Uh, oh, actually, one thing I forgot to mention, um, you talk about changing your last name, because I was, I was curious how your family reacted to you doing that. Um, I um, changed mine to my mother's maiden name. Oh, okay. And my father threw, I mean, that was... Oh, I'm sure. I mean... I mean, first of all, uh, when I uh, told him that I was going to transition, um, he just disowned me on the spot. Right. Um, but one of the missiles that he lobbed at me was um, was about changing my last name. That was like the last straw for him. Yeah. No, my family my family didn't mind that at all, which was really nice. Hmm. I mean, they sort of said, uh, "Many women change their last names. Why would that be a problem?" Good point. <laughs> uh-huh and you didn't even have to marry anybody to do it exactly <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> mm. uh, i also liked that it uh i looked it up and it means sea of bitterness uh in some translations and i thought oh, what? that's pretty good <laughs> sea of bitterness <laughs> <laughs> yeah it just has a nice a nice poetic ring to it so uh, well <laughs> that's miriam that means that not not suzanne <laughs> Well, and my my mom's middle name was Sue, and my my grandma's middle name was also Susan, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so it was nice holding on to that <laughs> lineage through my maternal side. 
Hey, Mia? Yeah. Paula in the United States, he writes. Okay. Her question is, Yeah? I've heard the term high femme. Does this presentation apply to either of you? And is doing it or not just a natural expression for you? Or is it something you felt there was some social pressure about? Yeah, that's interesting. You want to take that first? No, I'm going to ask you, are you femme? <laughs> I am. I would not call myself high femme. Uh, that seems like something different. But I I mean, I think we, we talked about this last week. I said I was femme of center. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I present somewhat femme, but I'm not very... Um, mm-hmm. I don't put a lot of effort into it. What would you say are the defining fa- aspects of femme? Oh... That's is it long hair, nail varnish, uh, eyeliner? I'm not. I'm not even sure. I think I know femme women with short hair and without nail polish. I think I don't know. It's some. It's some other. Hmm. Uh, I don't think it's well defined. But you know, it's funny. I um, I do call myself high femme, but I d- did not start out calling myself. That term was applied to me. Okay. So I I got that from the people who were looking upon me. Yeah. So what drew them to say that? Well, I think the the markers in my case, I'm pretty much always dressed Euro chic. Uh huh. I do have long hair. Um, I always have varnished nails. I won't go outside without makeup. Ah, there's a difference. I will entirely go outside without makeup. I do have uh, polished nails. Oh, okay. I uh, I wear makeup for shows and special events, and anytime I'll be speaking in front of people. Uh huh. And otherwise, I generally forget. Uh huh. Yeah. See, I would be very uncomfortable mm-hmm. going out. I would not forget. I would. It would be like, uh, for example, when I go across the road to the one stop to grab a thing of milk. Mm-hmm. If I've been inside all day working, I don't have makeup on. I'll, I will put lipstick on. Yeah. But you know, it, going out uh, just to go across the road to the one stop without lipstick and earrings? No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. Won't happen. Yeah. That sounds high femme to me. <laughs> the question is why she asks is it natural or did you feel social pressure to do it and that it, i have asked myself this question i don't know the answer yeah i always feel like with some of these things it's really hard to say uh those those don't easily pull apart uh-huh. um i can say i i think i was for the months that felt most transitional i presented higher femme i wore makeup more every time I went out. I uh, I wore dresses more often because it felt useful. It felt useful in terms of passing. Uh-huh. Uh, it made a difference at that point, and it no longer feels like it makes a difference. So that would have been social pressure in some ways, um, but not an unnatural expression. If I can ask you, yeah. if you were having trouble passing now, would you be more femme, or would you just? I don't know. I think I I think I would. Um, Passing has felt so nice that while I I have political issues with the need for that, uh-huh. uh, uh, it's nice to just be accepted. Yeah, um, it's less stressful. So I would I would put effort into it if I if I had to put more effort into it. Hmm. Oh yeah, another marker of high FM. You were mentioning uh, wearing dresses. I don't own any trousers. Yeah. So I guess that would be another marker. <laughs> yeah. I. Uh, I wear dresses in the summer, and then I wear, let's not say pants. Pants is the American term. That's, uh, I think. <laughs> yeah. When you're in England, don't talk about your pants. We don't talk no. about our pants. No, I think that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> jeans. Let's say jeans. I wear jeans much of the time uh, when it's colder out. <laughs> They're called trousers, love. That's what you say. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that would just be weird. Um, I haven't worn trousers in ages. That would be very strange. So answering the question myself, I do okay physically Mm -hmm. um, in terms of passing, but I was not super blessed. I'm heavy bone tall. I've got hands and feet that are large for a man my size. Mm -hmm. I have a slightly awkward hairline, you know, because I transitioned when I was 32. So I've got some hair recessions. I have a lot of things that I'm self-conscious about, including my voice. Yeah. So I've got that problem where even 28 years later, I can see the man in the mirror, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so I feel like probably more than you, I have to compensate. And and I may be wrong about this. I mean, this is all self-perception, right? And I, sure. 
it's been demonstrated to me time and time again that I am a piss poor judge of <laughs> of how I really look, of how I'm seen. Well, people assume everyone in their world is cis unless they're explicitly told otherwise. That's sort of the starting assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, you have to yeah you have to show a lot of signs, or you have to be around people who are looking for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, all I can say is I don't get clocked. Yeah, you know, and I don't go around fretting about it. I mean, goodness, I would have made myself mad at decades ago. <laughs> but I, but I have wondered because, of course, this all started in transition, right? Mm-hmm. Although I was actually pretty femme before transition. Now I think on it. Yeah. I mean, I was femme before. <laughs> yeah, I was femme with a beard. The beard was somehow protection. Mm-hmm. But uh, but otherwise otherwise femme. I don't know. Did we answer the question? Yeah. Did we feel social pressure about it? I guess I'll just underscore that. Yeah, I do. Um, and I think it's no different to what a lot of cis women feel. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, women, I mean, I read an interesting interesting story, I think it was in the establishment, talking about um, heavy women feeling like they have to present high femme. Oh, yeah, um, I believe that. That it's essentially a requirement put upon overweight women that they present high femme. Sure. And I think it's a requirement put on large-boned women to present high femme, probably. I think I feel that pressure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, if I can't go to the one-stop without putting lipstick on, I'm there, there's definitely some pressure there from somewhere, wouldn't you say? I mean, do I really care what the lady at the one-stop thinks? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, I mean, there there are various reasons that you would want to present in a way and it's not always because of what somebody else will think so you know what i mean so i'm saying that could be internal still mm-hmm. and i think that's hard to separate yeah it's not somebody else making you do it it's your own sense of how you want to be seen how you want to present yeah basically i think it's hard to unpack it yeah i agree i, I think i i think that i present in the way that the world wants me to present and I think mm-hmm. I present that way by choice because I want to be comfortable in the world. I, there was an interesting, I feel like uh, the explicit social pressure for me being out and being open with all my, everyone I know. I can't even imagine it. Yeah. <sighs> the social pressure in my circles was the other way. They were worried that I would overcompensate. And so there was sort of a pressure against, against being too femme. Huh. Uh, at the same time that there was sort of this uh, internal or more uh, vague societal pressure to present more femme. Huh. Um, and that was a that was a conflict for me. So the queer woman gets caught in the middle. Yes. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question really quickly. Great. Let's take this question from Meg, a cisgender woman in the United States. She says, this may sound like a weird question, but I'm curious how uh, cisgender women are viewed by trans women. Uh, we often hear from self-proclaimed real women how they view trans women, but I've never heard the other side. So she's saying that cis women... Uh, don't consider us real women? Some don't. That's true. But, but basically, that they're established, the cis women are establishing criteria for, for the womanhood of trans women. Is that, am I right. reading that correctly? Well, so the question seems to be, though, what are we doing? How are we perceiving them back? Uh, that seems to be the main question here. Well, until we get into transition, I would say with enormous envy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and probably... I think jealousy defines a lot of that relationship. <laughs> yeah, envy, um, sometimes resentment. Especially with regard to this real woman thing, you know, when when uh, like a tariff uh, tells me I'm not a real woman, I'm saying, you know, I had to to work just to to get my womanhood and you just got it for free. And and you're saying that you're getting it for nothing is more real than what I had to fight for. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's it's also a phrase that I've heard from people who I would not consider TERFs. Uh, who think of themselves as very supportive and uh, would be, but haven't considered that language, haven't yeah. uh, dug into it. So they'll still say things like, uh, you look like a real woman or Ugh. something like that, where, yeah, that's... Yeah, never say that to a trans woman. A trans woman is a real woman. <laughs> a, a trans wo- woman yeah. who hasn't transitioned. 
is a real, real woman. And I understand that's confusing. There's a lot to unpack there, but women are women. You know, there's all kinds of different uh, externals and values put on it. But what makes you a woman is not those externals. So I don't know. Help me out here. Me, I'm, I'm starting to get up on my soapbox. Please make me stop. <laughs> oh, fucking make me stop. Uh, so how do we how do we view cisgender women? How do we? Yeah, now I I don't know. I, at this point, um, I think I'm I'm basking in the finally having some some sense of being on the inside. Uh, you're enjoying some cisgender acceptance. You're finding some cis privilege. Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, that's really refreshing. Mm-hmm. As problematic as it is, <laughs> mm-hmm. it feels great. Um, and so that's um, like um, I can finally talk about, I can talk with other women about uh, my history of abuse and not have them see it the wrong way. Uh, for a long time, people sort of didn't understand how to conceptualize me in that mm-hmm. conversation. And it's, I don't know, it's felt really nice. I mean, also playing gigs and we play a lot of shows with other bands with women in them and all of us having a sense that that's uncommon in the scene Mm -hmm. and feeling some sisterhood about it, whatever that Mm -hmm. means. I'm speaking as as a woodworked woman, so I'm perceived as cis by cis women. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I think the most the most extreme form of this is is in marked uh, women's spaces, like for example in the nail salon. Sure. You know where you're sitting with a woman who you probably know, and and you're chatting away, you know, about husbands and boyfriends and children and all this stuff, you know. And that's a safe woman's space because guys are not going to hang around in a nail salon. That's right. And you know, so I I would say I I look at cis women no different to myself. They're just women mm-hmm. that I know. I don't feel different to cisgender women. Yeah. Depending on the situations, I would be I would feel cautious sometimes. Like what? I think there's a well, I don't know which cis women are going to not consider me a real woman. So I have some caution around that, around who who gets to know and when and um Am I considered an equal in this conversation? You're talking about when you're out to them. Well, I'm talking about also when I'm not. Like, are they going to clock me and are they going to make a... Uh, is that going to Is that gonna suddenly kick me out of the group? Uh-huh. Right? So there's a little bit of fear there. So then I, I would, to put words in your mouth, then I would say that in some ways you view uh, cisgender women as the holders of the key to whether or not you get accepted. That's right. Yes. Uh, they're the gatekeepers that I have to that I have to somehow prove myself to, which can be scary. So so you get to prove your womanhood to cis women and they get to decide whether or not you're a woman. Yeah. That's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little power imbalance there. <laughs> and that uh, does play into this thing because we do. There is a, a I'm sure a small minority of women who are extremely loud about how trans women are actually men evilly yeah. trying to invade whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. You know, like that's a thing. And I'm lucky that I'm I'm lucky I haven't run into any mm-hmm. of them in person. That's not something I've experienced in person. I've only seen it online. Yeah. So Yeah, they can be quite vicious. Don't really understand it. Yeah. Um, so we view cis women as just being other women just like us, except when our history exposes us to their verdict in a way that is frightening. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's some some jealousy early on and some trepidation later on that can happen there. Mm-hmm. And if we're lucky, then it just all becomes women, and we can just leave the rest of that behind. Yeah, yeah, which is really nice when that happens and feels safe. All right, Alice, it's uh, story time. We're going to do a little reading. Okay, then. Mia, this week's reading is excerpted from your essay Uh called Body and Gender Fragments. We'll put a link on the pod page. This is the wonderful piece that uh, originally I read just out there in the world and inspired me to get in touch with Mia and started our, our friendship and collaboration. So without further ado, this is Body and Gender Fragments. 
I wasn't born in the wrong body. I was born a body. Without this body, I don't exist. Some bodies have freckles while some are six foot four and nearsighted. Some grow thick hair while others have autism. Each body comes with a unique mix of experiences, affordances, and constraints. This body isn't wrong, it's trans. My genitals don't match my gender the way some bodies do. You might need help with insulin. I need help with estrogen. I don't mean to medicalize this experience, only to claim it and put it in my body. I operate best on hormones I don't produce. Most women call that menopause. We call it transition. Hormones are a slow magic. Cis women warn me about the emotional terrors of estrogen. <laughs> Clearly you haven't tried testosterone, I say. That shit'll fuck you up. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> yeah. No, testosterone is horrible if you're not male. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting to me is that people think of women as having hormones and they don't think of men as having hormones. And that's absurd. I can't think of any hormone that messes with your emotions more than testosterone. Absolutely. Um, and often also it's shifts in hormones that affect people in some ways. And that may be more common with women, but, um, but hormones are still interacting. Do you remember when you started HRT and you got the testosterone blockers and started on estrogen? Yeah. Do you remember how that felt, that changeover? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time to look back on for me because I was trying to finish one book while adapting the other book into a play. That you were writing. That's right. While starting transition, while also going through some major changes at my company and hiring new staff. So that, oh, and I also bought a condo during that same time <laughs> um, and had to completely renovate it. Basically just Aaron and I doing the renovations. So it's hard to say <laughs> what of the things going on during that time were due specifically to HRT, mm -hmm. uh, hormones, and what was just my, my general busyness. I remember a lot of trans women warned me about sort of a three-month depression, uh, like a, a depression hitting around three months. Hmm. And I don't remember that explicitly, but it was, it was emotional for many reasons, some of which may have been hormone-related, some not. It was clear to me very quickly that I was enjoying this change. However emotional it was, however much there's a three-month depression, it was, I enjoyed even the depressed moments of it hmm. um, for feeling like finally some, like testosterone felt like it was blocking me or lack of estrogen did or something. I felt like I was being unblocked, mm -hmm. uh, letting it out. I, um, I've actually gone through this process twice as it happens. Uh huh. And as you say, originally during medical transition, there were so many confounding factors that it's very hard to say what all was in play. I do remember being emotionally very labile to where I would break mm -hmm. into tears easily, often for no reason. Yeah. There was just all of the drastic changes and the changes in the body and all the pains you get and all of your fats moving around. And it's, it's just yeah. kind of a, a big whirlwind of, of everything. It's literally puberty on steroids. <laughs> You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, or or literally off steroids. I think uh, steroids are testosterone based. Well, I, isn't is estrogen also a steroid? I guess I don't know. Oh, is it? I don't. I guess. Okay, I don't somebody know will send us a correction for next week's show. I think of it as I think of it as the opposite of juicing. <laughs> um, where this became clear, I had a breast cancer scare in two thousand four. I got a, a rapidly growing breast lump, and my oncologist took me off HRT. Oh. Yeah, it's fucking terrifying, let me tell you. And it turned out to be de benign and stabilized. But at that point, I figured I'm 50 years old. Mm -hmm. I guess I get to be menopausal now. My uh, oncologist was fairly adamant that I shouldn't be on estrogen. So I'm like, okay, fine, yeah. whatever. I, that was fine. And then what happened over the next 10 years was quite gradual so that I was unaware of it. But shortly after I got out of my bad marriage and started looking at myself for the first time in several years, because I went to hell and didn't look at myself for a long time, 
you know, I was shocked to look in my face and see that the subcutaneous fat layer had left. Right. That that masculinized bone structure was starting to show through. And, and I had hair growing where there yeah. hadn't been any hair growing before. Right. I was just horrified. And I talked to my doctor and we decided with the benign breast lump, there was really, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. No reason not to go back on estrogen. And within a couple of months of going back on estrogen after having been off uh, t for 10 years, it was actually astonishing. Here we had a situation where there were no confounds. I wasn't transitioning. The only thing that changed was adding estrogen back in. There was no testosterone in the equation. Right. And what happened was my emotions came back. Yeah. In a way that I didn't realize I'd lost. So I had, right. all of a sudden I had access to this, this spectrum of feeling that had been truncated and I didn't even know it. Right. Yeah, and I think that was the that was part of the magic for me was that I I got that and that's it, it felt like the main thing that I wanted even though there were lots of more visible things, and I like you said, um, I mean I said hormones are slow magic, but in some ways they're very fast for what you would expect. I think in their effect on one's personhood, I think it happens very quickly. Yeah, well, and even on how you're seen, it was um, yeah. probably six months of hormones and. And I was being, well, passing everywhere I went. So, the yeah, I, this the subcutaneous fat layer has come back, so that my face looks better. What happened yeah. immediately, and I didn't know this was a thing, but my nipples started to hurt again, and my breasts <laughs> my breasts went up a full cup size, <laughs> which I didn't realize I'd lost. Oh, okay, yeah, because it had been so gradual. But yeah, my chest bounced back up a cup size, and my titties hurt for about three months. <laughs> So, yeah, there's that there is that obvious effect. Yeah. Which which if you have any uh body dysphoria, uh that's that's so powerful. That's so that's so magical seeing that happen um and experiencing it. I think you really can't underestimate that. Yeah. Uh, especially for a trans a trans person. I thought when I started to transition, I thought I wasn't going to do hormones. And then a trans woman I was talking to, I started telling her how I was feeling. And she said, yeah, that's dysphoria. You should be on hormones and you'll feel better. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that in the leap of faith. That was a, that was yeah. a leap of faith. I trusted her. Actually, what you said echoes what Amanda said, the woman who sent in the questions for leap of faith. Yeah. So they will get into that. So um, just to wrap up this this one, I have a question for you. So sure. given the profound changes in our emotional state and our range of feeling, I am inclined to say that when we say, oh, I'm transitioning, but I'm still going to be the same person. Uh huh. I don't think that rings true. Well, I don't think we're, I don't think we're the same person. It's not the whole story. Well, that's that's for sure. I mean, this is really a question for, I don't know, someone else who knows me. <laughs> but I think Erin was talking about it uh, just the other day when she thinks back to the person that she started dating. Mm -hmm. There's the obvious physical changes, but then she says, and also, you have changed dramatically. Speaking of me, personality-wise, I think that's true. So I think who we are can change. Well, but there's other... And not for the worst. There's other things that, you know, I'm still a computer programmer. I am uh, still have roughly the same interests. I still play music. I still make art. Mm. It's not all gone. It's not all different. Mm. It's, uh, it's some mix. It's not simple. I have more emotions. <laughs> yeah, probably the biggest change that I've heard partners uh, report is that their partner is happier and much nicer to be around. <laughs> yeah, I think. And she regularly says that I was passing fairly well as a man. <laughs> or she, when she when she uses the word passing, it's always in reference to that, to what we did before. That's when yeah. I passed. So I think that's a fair thing. Do you want to read the next segment? Sure. I wanted a complex gender breaking from tradition without crossing any lines. I hoped that gender was only a construct and a change in performance could destroy my dysphoria. I wanted to express my feminine traits and just move on. But feminine is not my gender. Painted nails are not what it means to be a woman. Gender is often performed, but the performance is not the whole story. The play is not the thing. 
A friend asks me what it means to be a woman. I have no idea. What does it mean for you to be your gender? I'm just wondering what the last line means because it leaves me confused. There was a lot of this what does it mean to be what does it mean to you to be a woman? I think I got that question quite often. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt like I'm not doing it because it means something. Uh, it's uh, it's just who I am. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose it for a meaning. So it's it's this cisgender view that trans is somehow performative, right? And and chosen because it, yeah, it means something to you, and it doesn't mean something to me. It's just a fact of life, right? This idea of performance versus identity. Yeah, I'm I'm not playing a woman. I'm not yeah. filling the role of a woman. I'm I'm not um, living as a woman. That's my least favorite, living yeah. as a woman. Oh, for mm-hmm. fuck's sake. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm living as a woman the same way all the other women are. Yeah. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that is, there is a lot of this. Gender is in some ways a social construct, and it is in ways performative. But anyone who thinks that that means that that means gender doesn't exist in a real way, that's absurd. Mm-hmm. Go back and reread your Judith Butler and you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I read an article, an interview with her yesterday morning uh, where she was arguing adamantly that her work is not anti-trans and you should stop reading it that way. Interesting. It's a good one. I'll link to it. Yeah, people can weaponize anything, can't they? This next segment picks up from the one before. I never felt like a girl. Uh, What do girls feel like? I didn't always know and dream of wearing dresses. I wasn't consistent, insistent, or persistent. I was frustrated. Even after I pinned that pain on gender, it took me years to make sense of the fragments. Sometimes you don't know the pain is real until it goes away. Yeah, that consistent, insistent, persistent, that's right out of the diagnostic, the former, I think, diagnostic criteria. For children specifically, I think. And it's it's just bullshit, is, is, is what it is. Yeah. It leaves the vast majority of trans people out in the dark. It is absolutely, kids that are consistent, insistent, and persistent should absolutely have rights, <laughs> be respected. Mm-hmm. But it's only a start. That's um, yeah. That's not all of us. And this thing that I'm hearing a lot, which is that you don't really know the pain for what it is until it goes away. Yeah. And that was, again, that leap of faith. That was that trusting other women to tell me, here is how the pain went away for me. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was interesting discovering during HRT, I mean, when I was first starting hormones, there were several times where I... I started to notice my dysphoria more acutely mm-hmm. in those first couple months because I was sort of, I was paying more attention to it. It was being brought to my attention uh, in new ways. I have heard this so often. People say that as they enter into and start to move through transition, the dysphoria in many ways gets worse. Yeah. And it's because when pain is all you, this is my theory, mm-hmm. when pain is all you know, so you have this background of pain to everything, and you know it can't be helped. You just live with it. Right. But once you start fixing some of it, once you start dealing with it, it becomes a focus. Yeah. Once you get a little bit of relief, then your focus goes on to the pain. And it's mm-hmm. like, this is something I'm having to live with that I that doesn't need to be here anymore. Yeah. And it becomes quite intense. Yeah. Oh, it was worth getting through that. <laughs> God, yes. Sometimes you don't know the pain is real until it goes away. Yeah. The next one. This was never a male body. It was always a trans body. My body was trans as a kid. My body is trans now. My body will always be trans. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't know if there's anything to say about that. (laughs) That is such a strange idea to me. I am from a different time. Yeah. Our point of view generally, uh, everybody I knew anyway, 
was that transition ended when you had surgery and everything was done mm -hmm. and you were not trans anymore. Yeah. And I definitely went into the woodwork and into life effectively as a cis woman feeling that and, and conducted myself as such. So it's kind of a surprise to me. I, I reemerged on the scene in the middle of 2016 yeah. last year. And it was very shocking to me to have this idea that I might still be trans. It was actually very upsetting. Yeah. I was very disoriented and upset to have this reintroduced into my life. That makes sense. But your take is that you're okay. You've got a trans body. And no matter what you do, it's still going to be a trans body. Well, wait, how did you get to the I'm okay part? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It sounded like you're okay. Your body will always be trans. I think I'm coming to terms with that. I don't know that that's exciting. <laughs> But it, it feels to me like I will always have to deal with this. And also, I mean, at this point, transition isn't quite treated the same way. There is no moment when I started it that felt like I could, I could list eight different starts to my transition. Mm -hmm. And I kind of can't imagine a moment that would end it. Hmm. Yeah. And maybe this is a product of our different times, our different generations. Mm -hmm. I can tell you the day I started and the day I finished. Right. Well, it is it is definitely treated differently now. I mean, at, mm -hmm. at that point, there was no option for what I think one friend called non-binary surgery or non-binary transition. Oh, yeah, no, that wasn't the, no, nobody had that as a concept that I'm aware of. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, people are doing some medical things and not other medical things, and it's different for everybody. And Yeah. And there's... My th times have changed. Yeah. Yeah. There was, uh, 30 years ago, there was only one way to be trans. Yeah. And you were either trans or you weren't, and it left a lot of people out. Yeah. Speaking of authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in authenticity, but I do believe in pain and doing something to survive it. And that's really what this is. Mm-hmm. We transition because we have to. Yeah. And I didn't, like, have some inner secret self that I thought was more authentic. I just... Hormones helped. That's it. So that was from Body and Gender Fragments by Miriam Suzanne. Uh, there's a link on the pod page. You can find lots of Mia's writing at Miriam Suzanne with a Z, MiriamSuzanne.com, or just Google Miriam Suzanne. She fills up <laughs> the Google in a way that makes my toes curl with jealousy. <laughs> I'm serious. It's like you Googled Miriam and it's everything Miriam and you Google me and it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's the advantage of being a web developer. Known, a known web developer helped me yeah. show up. That's too high a price. <laughs> and having a unique name. There are not a lot of Suzannes out in there in the world and very few Miriam Suzannes. <laughs> Well, Leah, my love, what's your name again? <laughs> Leah's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that about does it for this week. Yeah, it's been great to uh, talk with you, Alice. Uh, thank you to everyone for sharing this time with us. You can find more at aliceandmia.com, and we'll put up links and more info about the show and this episode and everything we talked about. So go to aliceandmia.com, and then also on social media. Twitter and yeah, you can get links to all of that there at the website. We do ask that you click on the Patreon link there at the website and at least follow the show on Patreon, even if you can't afford the dollar or euro or pound that it costs to sign up for the special patrons Q&A sessions. If you follow us, we can at least keep in touch with you and let you know what is going on. Lost, we really need you to help us out with the five-star thumbs up, like, heart, follow, and subscribe, <laughs> without which we will literally cease to exist. Alice and Mia is an award-seeking podcast written and hosted by Allison Washington and Miriam Suzanne. Our theme music is by Teacup Gorilla. Send your questions to pod at aliceandmia.com and go to aliceandmia.com for more information. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye, Mia. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs>